Hey everyone, this is Tony Holbein. You are listening to The Revenue Formula. In today's episode, we're talking with Thomas Hansen. He's the president of GoToMarket at Amplitude. And we're talking about why shaking hands and face-to-face meetings aren't just old school. They're essential in today's customer-centric world. Enjoy. So, Mr. Mr. Introduction Master, what, what are we going to talk about? Have you been? Have you ever been windsurfing? Actually, <laughs> I actually have. Yes, I have been windsurfing, and I stood up for about five seconds and then smashed my face. Was it, into was the it down water. here in Amma, basically? Yeah, or yeah, where, the popular, where was it? yeah, the popular spot. Exactly. So Andrew on the team, he used to. Spend yeah, but a he's lot a of time he's a kite that. surfer. That's that's a little. Oh, different. Well, that's, that's what I did. Oh no, that's not good. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Windsurfing, kitesurfing. What is it actually for you? Is it is it, is it wave wave surfing or is it windsurfing for you? I mean, it's it, it's all different disciplines of windsurfing, but my absolute favorite is what I would call well, I'm older now, so I guess medium-sized waves for me. I used to love going to Klitmüller in northern yeah. uh, Jutland, but I think these days I should probably stay right clear and rather go to Hornbeck or Liselei or some of the spots in in northern parts of uh, Shetland, north of Copenhagen, if I go to Denmark. For everyone who hasn't guessed it already, we have a guest here today. It's Thomas Hansen, currently working as president at Amplitude and previously done a couple of other things. I think spent like 14 years at Microsoft, basically mm-hmm. building up the business. Then you spent a couple of years at Dropbox. Also, might you know, some people might have heard about this already. You were the CRO of UiPath, and are now, I mean, it's called president at Amplitude, but it's basically kind of similar to a CRO role, right? So just, just so we're mm. getting this right. I, it's a little bit different. So uh, I am all up responsible for the top line and the P&L of the business. I do have a CRO working for me who is incredible, Nate Crook. He's been in the company for just over half a year, nine months actually, mm-hmm. as well as a COO, a CMO, and a head up a customer success. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a it's a great role. It's super fun. I've done a number of of roles post Microsoft. This is company number four post Microsoft, and it's all been in the go to market uh, realm. I would say. Uh, both as president, I've been COO, I've been CRO a couple of times. But at the end of the day, you gotta own the top line, you gotta own the customer relationships, and you gotta own a responsible PL. No, absolutely. And I think the um what we like kind of doing a little bit of research, and obviously when someone goes on your LinkedIn profile, there's a lot of board member investor advisor slots as well. I yep. think um we found Dixer there as well, who is a customer of ours, and obviously kind of, you know. I think you kind of probably you know Mass pretty well and and, and that team. Um, right, but right what on. really stood out for us was um, your past as um, was it windsurfer and as bartender, right? Mm, because that's right. it's really I think it's really important for everyone listening, thinking, wow, that guy. Uh, but you know, uh, as we in German say, uh, you know, everyone is still only cooking with water, and that's the same <laughs> thing here, I guess, right? So, do you have like one or two stories from your bartender windsurfer time to kind of you know ground you a little bit and make you a little bit more accessible for the audience? You right on. So, listen, I uh, my passion besides my family is windsurfing. I started as a windsurfer when I was 14 years old on Roskildefjord, which is um, uh, yeah. just north of Copenhagen, where my grandparents uh, built a small, very humble beach cabin actually a hundred years ago, and it's still mm-hmm. in the family. Now, um, I worked for a couple of summers in a local windsurfing store in Frederiksberg, uh, a small town 
40 minutes north of Copenhagen. And I had the pleasure of teaching folks to learn how to windsurf. You mentioned earlier on that you had a go at it. Mm. And I had the pleasure of helping a 72-year-old man uh, learn to windsurf, and he was remarkably good. I helped an eight-year-old boy. He was also amazing. So it was a very accessible sport, lots of fun, um, and I've got very fun memories of it, of it. I also had the pleasure of selling competitions for, for three seasons, also super fun. More fun than winning. I, I was not great. I, my greatest achievement was once ending up as uh, the runner-up number two in a, in, in a competition in southern, in southern Denmark. So, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with it. And as for my days as a bartender, you know, there's an expression, <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So I'm not <laughs> able to comment. I can't deny or confirm anything and nothing ever happened. So, so we know exactly what happened then. Wonderful, <laughs> nice, <laughs> really, really cool, really cool stuff actually. And um, um, and you know, when did you make the jump from from you know good old Denmark to um to the US? Was it specifically then for Microsoft, or was it through? I think Dynamics was kind of here of uh, Denmark first. So how did how did you no. how did you do it? No, you know, I um, I as I was doing my undergrad degree um at the Copenhagen Business School. I also started working full-time for a hardware company back in 92, so 31 years ago, um, called Olivetti. And when I finished my undergrad degree, I decided to take a year or two off um, uh, before doing my my master's. Um, And I initially planned to take a year or two off and literally be a a beach bum and go windsurfing on Maui. Mm -hmm. And I had a really good manager's manager at Olivetti. and he said to me, Thomas, don't be a fool. Get a job with Olivetti somewhere international and and pick a place that's fun and get an adventure and earn a little bit of money. And I followed his great advice. And I ended up being offered in late 93 to go to South Africa, six months before the, before, uh, the first um, democratic elections. And, you know, I ended up spending on and off more than 12 years living in South Africa in four different stints. That's also mm-hmm. where I met my wife, Ingrid. Uh, we met in 95. Um, we have three kids that are all born in South Africa, but they are uh, they all have quadruple citizenships, Danish, Dutch, South African, and now American there US. You go. Um, there you go. In between the various stints in South Africa, uh, we spent some time, two years in, Ty- in um, Turkey, in Istanbul, which was an amazing experience as well. We spent a year in Bangkok, Thailand, also incredible experience. And then 15 years ago, um, I was already working for Microsoft first in South Africa, then in Turkey, and then back in Africa. And then an opportunity presented itself in 2009 to go to Seattle, to the Microsoft headquarters. And we made a family decision that the U.S. Would be, would be a fantastic home for us longer term. It was safe, great educational opportunities, great opportunities um, for us as a family to to thrive. And, uh, you know, I, my wife and I, we only look back on that on that with fondness. So um, <clears throat> I worked at Microsoft in, in Seattle for six years. My last gig there, I, I ran the global SMB, small medium business sales marketing mm-hmm. operations for that. Mm-hmm. It was a, when I left almost a 10 billion US dollar business, 2000 people. So real scale, like at extreme levels. But nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, I had one of these amazing, lucky career and life change changing moments. I got introduced to the then CEO of Sequoia Capital, one of the leading venture capitalist firms in the world. Um, his name is Doc Leone. He's one of the, one of the most remarkable uh, tech leaders. Um, and um, 
long story short, that's how I got introduced to uh, Drew and the gang, Dennis, at um, at Dropbox, and I ended up spending a couple of years there. Um, subsequently, I spent some time at Carbon Black, a cybersecurity company uh, that we successfully IPO'd at NASDAQ, and eventually um, got acquired in a great outcome for our customers, for our investors, for our employees. Uh, we got acquired by VMware. Mm-hmm. Then I had a stint at UiPath, uh, which was an amazing, wonderful experience working for the kindest, most genuine, humble, amazing human being that I've ever met, Daniel Dinas. Um, we had lots of fun together. I still consider him a very close friend. Um, we did an amazing scaling exercise during COVID. We grew the company in two years from 300 million US to a billion dollars um, and did one of the largest IPOs on net, on NYSE in, gosh, when was it? May 2001 right during COVID, mm-hmm. which was yeah. incredible. Now, um, then again, an opportunity to present itself. Again, the connected tissue is Sequoia Capital in all these startups, um, Dropbox, Carbon Black, UiPath, and then Amplitude. Yeah. Uh, folks, a couple of friends at Sequoia called me and said to me, hey, Thomas, you should go and meet this guy. And I think we think you'll enjoy him. So I got introduced to Spencer Skates, who's the co-founder and uh, and CEO of Amplitude. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time together. Um, you know, both Spence and I believe in the power of face-to-face. So we met, uh, as we were dating, if you'd like, we met four times face-to-face. We spent 14 hours together face-to-face, including he actually flew down and uh, visited me at my home here in Montecito. And um, our dating turned into a handshake, and uh, I joined amplitude in the summer of uh, july 2022 so a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and look i believe that the most important thing in any company in any work you take on is the people and for me one of the core reasons why i joined was and still to this day is spencer um he is a little bit younger than me you know 20 odd years younger than me <laughs> uh he is one of the most remarkable product and engineering leaders in the world. Um, his insight, his brilliance um, is out of the out of the scale. And I'm so happy I get the opportunity to work with him, to learn from him, to partner with him and drive the go-to-markets out of the house. And he focused more on the company leadership, the investors, the analysts, and of course, product, technology, and engineering. So a real wonderful partnership. But face to face, that was really important in shaping that relationship, and that's how we got the, we got going. Yeah. That's it. And I mean, it's, so it's funny you talked a lot about how you've been basically hopping around the globe uh, to different gigs, and we're going to talk a bit about you know hopping around in the context of um, you know staying in the same job but actually meeting folks. And I think yeah, we, so Tony and I obviously talked a bit beforehand, um, and we kind of said, well, I wonder how many of our listeners actually spend the time hop on a jet go and meet a customer, go and meet a prospect and go and meet a partner. We said, probably it's not going to be that many actually. You know what? It's on there. I got to interject and say something. I think something really negative. Well, actually a number of fronts have happened on in during the time of COVID, but specifically relating to this here, I think a lot of people have forgotten about the value of face to face. 
I think a lot of people are sitting on calls like this. Ironically, we're sitting on a call. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of people have forgotten the value of getting in their car, jumping onto the subway, go, go to the airport and go and spend time. Go and spend time with your colleagues. Go and spend time with people that you are con contemplating hiring and meeting them face to face. Go and meet prospects, customers, partners face to face. The value you get there, it's it's the read you get on this situation, the connected tissue you get, invaluable in my opinion. And, and I think this is what we want to spend some time on digging into, right? So we have a couple of RevOps folks here, always people that, you know, probably, you know, very numbers driven. So we'll probably yeah. explore that side of, of that equation just a little bit, but it's it's not the full equation, obviously, right? Kind of, especially when you start talking connected tissue and the relationship, yeah. it's hard to quantify these things and it's silly to even try. But really kind of, um, really thinking about this, right? When you have this, and I think you're right. I think you're right. It it certainly started with COVID. Suddenly, hey, this works. I yeah. see it with myself. I'm like, after the whole COVID period, um, way less likely to jump on jets and be just away for like two, three days. Maybe yeah. me having two small kids since then also plays a role in this. But there's a little that. bit more of like, hey, you know, it's actually kind of cozy to sleep in my own bed. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and the thing is, right, how do you, um, you know, first of all, you have been doing this for your whole career, right? I mean, this was, yeah. this was kind of a pretty key part, I'm sure, and, you know, helped you now to also land those fantastic jobs and those fantastic companies. Um, tell us a little bit, you know, from, from your perspective, you know, if you had to give like a, you know, a couple of arguments for people to reconsider and they're like, hey, stop those Zoom calls, jump on a jet instead. You know, what What would you tell them? What would you tell folks that are doubters and like, ah, you know, I really like my own bed a lot? Look, um, there's this mathematical equation known as the art and science of sales. And over time, the equation has changed, the mix has changed. We're moving more and more and more towards the science of sales. We have data, we have incredible tools from companies like, of course, Salesforce, um, but also companies like Highspot, Clary, Outreach, Gong, and the list goes on, that we can all use in various ways. And what it really provides us with is ultimately customer insights, but also ability to run propensity analysis to understand most likely next customer or most likely next customer to expand. Mm -hmm. So all those insights allows us to be far more precise in what we do. But I still think that part of the equation is the art, the art of selling. And the art of selling, I'm not talking about going and playing golf with a customer or um, eating a big steak with them. Yeah. But there is magic. There's magic getting into a plane and on row 32D and have some cold chicken, but uh, <laughs> getting in front of the customer and spending time with them across various levels, a technical level, a, an economic buyer level, and everything up and down and in between, mm -hmm. and really deeply dig into and understand what are the issues. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the human touch. There's the human touch where you actually meet someone and you connect at a human level. And once you've done that once or twice with a prospect or a customer or a partner, it allows you to leverage what we're doing right now, sitting on a Zoom call, sitting on a video call, and leveraging that connection you've established to be able to make progress so much faster. So what I've found personally is um, 
once you've created that first human interaction face-to-face, thereafter working with, with that prospect, working with that customer online or mostly online becomes so much easier because that emotional connection has been established. How to quantify that, how to put that into a math equation, how to do an ROI on it, I really can't tell you. But what I can tell you is, look, I reflect on myself. I um, I was sitting earlier this morning and 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 making some notes for a, a, a video I'm about to drop on LinkedIn tomorrow. And I've been traveling in the last four months. I've been to Europe. I went to Amsterdam, Paris, London. I've been in the US across many places, including New York and San Francisco. Just come back from a two-week trip to Korea, Singapore, and Sydney. I spent time with, of course, with with my teammates all over the world. Got to interview some people, uh, hopefully future employees of Amplitude. But I got to meet 50 customers and prospects and partners. And that set of learnings I have from the meetings is now translating into a product roadmap. The learnings I got from the meeting is now translating into our training and enablement strategy internally for all of our colleagues because I realized that I had some perceptions I thought it was truths around where we were as a company in terms of how we sell, how we position things, and it was just not true. So mm-hmm. some training and enablement I, 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 I required there. But it also gave me an opportunity just to create those human relationships where it is now so much easier to follow up on an email, on a Slack, on a video call, and move things forward, as opposed to folks that you haven't met face-to-face. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And the, so when... When you build out, you know, let's get let's get a little bit into the nitty gritty, by the way, uh, because I think our audience might might really appreciate that. Um, so I'm thinking of amplitude, and now I'm thinking, you know, you probably have a um, like a mid market segment, a corporate segment, maybe an enterprise segment, something like that, right? Um, yeah. And I would assume that the amount of travel varies between those segments simply because, hey, some of those motions you can maybe not afford that, right? Or is that wrong? Is that is that not how you run it, right? And and follow up question on this one, you know, as you then you know maybe answer this, it's almost like, um, is it? Do you do you recommend uh, doing this as as early as possible in the process in the sales process in the customer life journey, or do you recommend? Oh, you know, once you've moved this to this stage and you know have certain you know uh, uh, probability around this maybe closing, kind of tell us a little bit, you know, how people should be thinking about it and how should. How should they be building this into their go-to-market motions? All right. So obviously, go-to-market motions vary from company to company, from category to category. Also, are you in B2C? Are you in B2B? Etc. But here's what I firmly believe in. Go and serve the customers where they want to be served. So embrace a multi-channel go-to-market strategy. What do I mean with that? Well, there are at least three, if not four different levers in terms of how you can sell. At the very low end, serving SMB and all consumers and all small teams in larger companies, I highly recommend anyone out there, if it's at all feasible, to explore a PLG, a self-serve, find, try, buy sales motion. We launched that after running tests for nine months at Amplitude. We launched in October. And whilst I can't discuss numbers, given that Amplitude is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ, what I can say is, even I, having done this before, am surprised at the progress we're making 
and how many customers we've gained in the last nine weeks. Mm -hmm. So number one, self-serve, find, try, buy, product that grows. Golden. What is so incredible about it is it's one of those non-linear businesses where for every million dollars, you don't have to throw another four sellers at it. It's a technology and marketing driven business that requires very few human beings. So once you get it to scale, like companies like Dropbox have done a world-class job at it, you run an incredibly profitable machine. So that's number one. Number two, consider leveraging partners, transactional channel partners, system integrators, white label relationships, OEM type relationships, what have you. That can give you reach into customers that you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be able to serve and find or they wouldn't want to work with you directly. It gives you ability to go and serve customers in countries where economically it's not viable to go and serve the customers. Um, by the way, in case folks don't know, mathematically speaking, around about 80% of most software vendors in the B2B space, uh, software vendors, top-line revenue comes from 18 countries. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you really want to be thoughtful around where you invest people on the ground. So PLG, Salesforce, find, try, buy. Number two, embrace channel. Number three, I would say inside sales engine. Uh, we call it velocity. Um, and really, I think of it partially as a PLS, a product-led sales engine, where you're leveraging a lot of the top of the funnel you get from your PLG motion. Uh, including some of the paying customers that actually has opportunity to be upsold into, into higher volumes and cross-sold into other blades in your platform, what have you. That is a segment where you seldomly would have sellers traveling. However, occasionally that you, you come across customers in, in this segment that you grow with and you mature and over time you actually go and see them. Um, we have a wonderful customer. This is a small little startup in France, in Paris, um, run by an amazing uh, leader called Alexi. Um, and we've had the opportunity to first serve them for free, then they became a smaller customer, then a medium customer. Now they are what I would call a very large, important customer force that I've been to the offices, gosh, I think three times in Paris. Um, by the way, the company is uh, the number one downloaded app on the Android and iOS marketplace called Be Real. It's the coolest, one of the coolest things in social networking. In case you're not on it, you should be on it. Um, so number three, um, inside sales, very little travel. And then number four, enterprise sales. And this is where you have the enterprise sellers that go out and travel. They engage with customers face to face. Uh, but also do a lot of work online, you know, in, the, in this new world of working. I will say this is this is where I think we have to be a little bit critical of what the pandemic has done to us, and get get our sellers and our SEs and our customer success managers out again with the customers more face to face. I think that's where we you know, have gone a little bit wrong, and you know, I, I I'm working on correcting that in, in Amplitude, and I think we made a lot of progress. I'm proud of our team in Amplitude. Uh, but here's the thing, if you only deploy an enterprise sales model and or kubelet with an inside sales engine, the challenge with that is it's not really economically scalable. The challenge with it is for every million dollars you want, you need to add one, two, three more sellers. So when you look at the shape of your P&L, it's very boring and linear. So you got to find something in your go-to-market strategy that allows you to scale 
in a non-linear fashion. You've got to find that tipping point. Mm-hmm. To me, a couple of the t- tipping points I've spoken about already is one, embrace PLG, product-led growth, sell-so-find, try-buy, as well as also embracing one or multiple channel notions so work with transactional partners to get reaching to other countries, other segments, and work with system integrators, OEMs, white label, telcos, you name it. Those mm-hmm. are ways that you can you can get your business to scale in a, lun- a non-linear fashion and really get to to the rule of 40 and, and profitability and yeah. positive, positive cash flow, which of course matters specifically in this economic environment. We had Jaco van der Koer from Winning by Design also on the show, and he was actually also talking about face-to-face, which is kind of one of the reasons why it's like, hey, that could be super interesting to discuss with you. Really? One of his like theories is basically like, oh, you know, you have this whole tooling space, and you mentioned some of those vendors um, yeah. that are uh, very aggressive in you know uh, enabling all teams to send out more stuff. Um, yeah. You have this whole AI, generative AI space that helps make it even easier. Mm-hmm. And one of his points was basically, hey, what we will probably start seeing is a bit of a return to, and, and this was him, you know, 20 years ago, uh, basically tra- traveling salesman, right? Uh, more face-to-face. Some of that stuff simply can't be uh, automated away by technology. Some of that stuff is connecting to that prospect, to that buy in a different way. Um, do you, you know, uh, do do you do you see almost you know the the world in a similar way, or even even more you know fundamental in the approach? Like, has actually nothing to do with all of that additional technology stuff that happened. That thing has been true for the last probably five hundred years of sales. It has certainly been true for the last thirty years of sales, and it's going to be true for the next one hundred years of sales as well. Kind of how do you um how do you how do you see that, and you know how do you see kind of the newest impact? Um, you know, maybe shaping this face-to-face piece, which I would say, you know, during COVID, uh, a lot of people were like, "Oh, it's it's now it's proven we don't need it, right?" Which is which is kind of the wrong direction. Gosh, there was a lot in that question and 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 that statement. Let's unpack it. Um, hey, I believe face-to-face continues to matter a great deal, as I mentioned earlier. However, let's add that intelligence layer to it through propensity analysis. So we have all this wonderful technology from some of the vendors I mentioned earlier and many others. And if you deploy that in an intelligent fashion, it really allows you to do far smarter targeting and optimize the time of your sellers as they go travel and as they are online, as, as they are on phone calls. I'll tell you a, 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 a quick story to, to give you a little bit of a sense of at, at its simplest format how it could work. Some years ago, I worked for another company and um, a couple of really smart folks uh, developed a um, propensity analysis tool that basically sucked in information from their paid for and free user base and allowed them to create a tool we named Starcatcher. So it was really a way of looking across 100,000 plus free and paying customers deploy propensity analysis, and go in and look at all the data you had and understand, okay, is there some reasons to engage? Now, I remember one story where we um, we were keen to engage a customer, a large company in the Pacific Northwest. And we went into this tool, into Starcatcher. And there weren't a paying customer at an enterprise level. But we found that there were a number of uh, small sub-teams, small teams in this large enterprise 
they actually were paying for, you know, teams of 10, 20 people. And one of them was the CMO, the chief marketing officer of that company. So I literally picked up the phone and I called this guy and said, buddy, it's your best friend from technology vendor ABC. <laughs> I see you're using the tool. Tell me how you're using it. And the guy went on to talk for 20 minutes with passion, with pride, with enthusiasm around the value of it. So what do you do? You, you jump onto it and say, my friend, I happen to be in your neighbor next week. Can I invite you out for a cup of coffee? So I went there together with our setup uh, on it, got the seller introduced. The chief marketing officer was super kind to introduce us to the chief information officer of that company. Long story short, that company, three months later, although they were paying for competing technology from another very large software company based in Redmond, Washington, <laughs> and they signed a million dollar plus deal with us at an enterprise level. Yeah. And going there, using data, meeting face to face, making that warm connection, getting introduced to another person, and then working face to face and really understanding how we could help them. That made the difference. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, again, it brings me back to the notion of the art and science of sales. That intelligent connection, I think there's, there's some beauty in that, real beauty. I'm kind of happy you made that example because I was going to say we had uh, an insurance broker who wanted to visit us personally at home. And I said, I don't want to visit, have a visit physically from an insurance broker that he can send us an email. We can hop on a call do you, because my question was going to be, do you see actually on the other side of the coin that those people you want to meet with, they're more reluctant to say, well, actually, wh why meet? We can just let's hop on a call. It's more convenient. You know, when we meet physically, it's going to take up more of our time. And ha have you seen that kind of side of the coin as well? I think everybody is trying to find ways to become more efficient. I think what COVID has taught all of us is a little bit more respect for boundaries between work and life. I, I don't believe in the concept of work-life balance. I believe in the work, the concept of work-life harmony. So I think what it has taught us is finding a better way to keep the working hours in a shape that still allows us to have a higher quality of life. And that I see happening, not just in the US, but around the world. I actually think that's a healthy outcome of what the pandemic has taught us. So to answer your question, I think a lot of folks are revert trying to be more efficient and leverage video calls, leverage Zoom and Teams and what have you, as well as just phone calls. Um, you know, I, I, I do go a little bit old school. So frankly, um, when it comes to larger transactions where I am the customer or potential customer, whether it's privately or in my working life, I do actually encourage face-to-face -face, um, that allows you to whiteboard, ideate, be more creative together in a room. And I find value in that. And you know, the companies I work with as partners, as vendors, certainly have the, have arisen to, to, to that and have done a good job. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, it'll, I think it'll, it depends a little bit. Um, Frankly, look, there's also just some customers out there now live in very, very distributed environments where the notion of they have a headquarter, they have an office you go to doesn't exist anymore. So that's a, that's a very different challenge. So that brings me into the notion of I, am, I see a reemergence of industry conferences in a massive way. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm not particularly proud of this, but I've been to Vegas 
Las Vegas four times this year to four <laughs> different conferences. <laughs> and uh, in this case, I'll break the rule of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and, and, and just share with you. I was talking to one of my friends who's on the board of directors of MGM, which is one of the larger chains mm -hmm. of, of, of casinos hotels in, in, in Las Vegas. And he was telling me that they literally booked out, fully booked out of, uh, for the next year, half or two years, I think he said, which is remarkable. So there's a, there certainly is a re resurgence of folks want to come back to come to come come together with their partner, with their vendor, but moreover, other customers like-minded and learn at, and in the process probably also have a little bit of fun together. I hope. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another thing that I've seen happening post the uh, post COVID, which. You know, when you think about it, it's a very productive way, uh, both for the vendor, but also for the prospective customers or customers to go to a location and learn and, and have some fun and, and take that back home and, and run a better, more product, productive business. So um, I, I think at this point, probably, hopefully, we have convinced a few people that they should actually go and meet folks. But I can also foresee the next problem that there's a wonderful listener out there going, yeah, we, we should go and meet folks. We're not doing it today. Where, how, do we, how do we start building up this culture? What should the process for us be as a business? Because ultimately you also want to tie it to outcomes that are important to the right. business. So right. how, how do we get started? Well, so first of all, um, I don't believe in telling. I believe in leading by example. So as I mentioned, uh, I've traveled extensively. As a matter of fact, I was checking my my hotel app uh, from my preferred hotel chain the other day. And just from that hotel, hotel chain, this calendar year, 2023, I've spent 118 nights in their hotels. Mm -hmm. So I believe not in telling, but leading by example and showing the value. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in the, I was in New York, um, um, gosh, four weeks ago or something like that. And, uh, I uh, I was only there for two and a half days. I did 14 customer and prospect meetings face to face in two and a half days. And one of this one of our amazing uh, sellers, his name is Brian. Um, he um, he and I have done quite a few um, uh, customer meetings together. We actually it, I, I go to New York every every three months, and he is very good. Normally setting up you know five ish meetings. He sat down and said, Thomas, I just want to give you a scorecard, a report back on your last trip. On your last trip, we met four prospects, and I'm proud to tell you four out of them, out of the four, two of them have become customers. So that was his way of giving me your feedback and scoring me as his colleague in partnering with him. I thought that was super neat. Uh, really. And, and I think kind of the, you know, uh, a little bit of a distilled piece here is actually, well, yes, you spend two two days, two and a half days in New York, but that doesn't mean you spend two days to meet one prospect or one customer. Kind of the trick is you want to, you know, add as many as you can, right? Because because really the 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 big pushback I think people in the head will have is like, well, um, sorry, I just can't afford it. Maybe maybe mm. they put it on the ACV and say like, ah, we're selling mid-market deals, commercial deals, you know, we can't jump on a jet all the time, doesn't work. Um, but ultimately it's gonna be about like, well, that's it just it just doesn't, you know, sorry, we need to be more efficient, everyone is pushing us. Um, and basically kind of use that as the reason, right? But alternatively, or kind of um, you know, almost from an opposite perspective, it's like, well, if you get 14, 14 sessions into those two days, 
<laughs> and I and I think no one is disbelieving that you build more trust, you probably build ah. more of a bond, you know, you kind of get totally. the champion to be a champion and you know, all of that stuff. And also if someone says, hey, this is the timeline, it's a different commitment to give to someone when you have met face to face before, right? So I think that's 100%. pretty clear. The trick mm -hmm. really is, well, you know, how do you get it done in a smart way? And a smart way is not to kind of fly to one town, have one meeting and return. It's to, you know, push as much, you know, face-to-face -face time with customers. And that could be meetings, it could be a coffee, it could be a dinner. Jaco yeah. mentioned it could be a run. It could be, it could be, you know, New York on the on the docks. You could play golf if you wanted to. But like uh, th that's that's kind of the the little bit the hidden trick here, right? You just need to get a little bit smart around setting the stuff up. Totally. You gotta be planful. So um I normally plan my time on a rolling three, four months basis. So look, I have to balance uh, one doing my full-time job as president of, president of Amplitude, uh, which is pretty time demanding, but also to mix in that I sit on two boards. Um, so I have recurring board meetings there and occasional outside of board meetings discussions. I'm an advisor to a red hot startup um, in the AI space. Uh, I'm also an investor uh, through a small VC fund that also takes a little bit of time. So. I have to figure out how do I do all this uh, in and outside of reasonable working hours and still get to enjoy my weekend at home with my wife. Um, so I um, I plan out three months. I know right now, Feb end of February, I'm going to be in Europe in four countries. I know in March, I'm going to be in New York. I know in April, I'm going to be in Tokyo. Um, and that allows me to be thoughtful, planful of how I schedule the trips. So I optimize my time and don't impact too many weekends, which I don't mm -hmm. want to. Um, but also provides my colleagues opportunities to go out and actually spend time well in advance. So it's not a last minute panic. Trying to get a good array of meetings set up with prospects, with partners, with customers, perhaps with press, perhaps with analysts. Um, so planfulness does help. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Look, let's not underestimate the notion of luck and randomness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes stuff happens and you just got to jump on a plane and go to one place and do one meeting because it matters. Yeah. I, and I did that back in December last year. I literally jumped on a plane and went and had dinner in Tokyo with a very, very important telco uh, company in Japan. And the return on that is... X, X thousand percent. Um, <laughs> so so sometimes you just got to say, I drop everything else and this one prospect, this one customer matters. And that's, that was indeed the case with this one specific telco customer in, mm -hmm. in Japan. So you, you jump on a plane, you kind of yeah. have this meeting and the quality of the meeting itself is much better than over Zoom, right? Kind of period. I think that's pretty straightforward. Mm. Yeah. But then there's so much magic before and after the meeting, right? It's it's not just this one hour, or the two hours you kind of carve out and have the conversation. There's actually lots of stuff happening around that that uh, that simply this just doesn't exist anymore. And you know, in the Zoom era, right? Kind of. Now, do you have like a story or two where like, hey, this this. 10 minute pre-meeting was actually the whole meeting. And uh, <laughs> and then in the rest of the two hours, you know, we kind of got the other things done or kind of how did this, uh, you know, do you have like a story there that kind of connects to this? Let me share with you one of the, one of the more embarrassing moments in my career. So this goes back to 
Uh, let me just think. This goes back to August 2006. I was a general manager or CEO for Microsoft in Sub-Saharan Africa. I was month, week number five in role. And we had a government leaders forum conference organized by Microsoft in Cape Town in South Africa. We had four country uh, presidents of countries coming in. We had 20 ministers of IT. And the keynote speakers was um, the famous uh, Dr. Sheikh Diara, um, as well as Bill and Bill. So Bill Clinton and Bill Gates. So uh, as the GM or CEO for Microsoft's business in Sub-Saharan Africa, I was the host for Bill and Bill. And uh, on day one after Bill Gates arrived, I had to go in and brief him on all the meetings he's going to have with the president's uh, head of states, as well as a few uh, IT ministers. I walk in there. My head of public sector had prepared, you know, the 10 briefing notes for, for Bill. I'd read them. But I was, I was green. I was, yeah, as I mentioned, a month, five weeks into the job, I walked into the briefing meeting with Bill together with my head of public sector. And Bill, as always, was super well prepared. And as you probably can imagine, he is wicked smart. So he straight away goes into questions on each meeting. And I think in the hour we spent with him, he probably asked 15 or 20 questions. And as much as I had prepared and read it, I had never met any of them. I didn't have a connection. I didn't know more background than what was in the meeting briefs. And Bill was asking us out of the meeting briefs, and I had no clue. I could not answer a single question. And that was obviously pretty embarrassing for me, but thank goodness my head of public sector was in the um, in the meeting and did a fabulous job in, in answering all questions. Then I went on to, you know, um, joining Bill for all the meetings with the heads of states and uh, with the presidents and, and with, with some ministers of IT. And uh, it was so inspirational to see how Bill was able to face-to-face -face connect with them in the most humble, genuine, caring way, and at the same time drive the Microsoft agenda. And, you know, what I took away from that is you've got to know your swear word. You've got to know your stuff. you really got to know your stuff. And... It taught me a lesson in terms of my own preparedness to go into meetings with, with more senior colleagues, but it also taught me a lesson in terms of what I should set as expectations to my team members in terms of how they should brief me, but it also taught me a lesson in humility. Seeing how Bill Gates was so humble in his engagement, both with me and my public sector lead, never had a choice word to me, although I, I knew nothing. And his humility in engaging with customers and genuine care. I've taken that as a lesson with me in terms of how I work with my teams and also how I work with customers, with prospects. Um, you gotta be you got to be thirsty for learning. you got to be really, really genuinely interested in understanding and getting to the point of what really matters for the prospect and customer and go and try to add value on that. But you also got to have a little bit of empathy for your colleagues uh, in terms of where they're at and what they know and what the context is for for them and 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 what's happening in their lives at the point in time to make sure that you're not driving too hard because there's a fine balance when you are living in this world of being a chief, chief revenue officer or CEO or president or a frontline sales manager. How hard do you push your team? I mean, think about it this way. Um, as we're recording this, I think today, I'm just checking, it's December 19th. And, you know, 
many tech companies in in B2B follow follow the calendar year as their fiscal year end. So, you know, right now we all have what do we have? Uh six, seven working days effectively left mm-hmm. to go and close the year. So of course you want to go and drive your teams and engage with the customers and apply the appropriate level of pressure to get things across the line. But you also got to apply a little bit of empathy. It's, you know, it's holiday season. Many folks are celebrating uh, Christmas and other holidays. And you got to make sure that you engage in a way where you have a little bit of empathy for, you know, what might be going on in their private lives. They're out shopping for their kids for Christmas and, and, and. So, so there's always a fine balance here. Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you for the Bill and Bill story. Thank you for all the other stories. I think a bunch of stuff to take away from here, not only face-to-face. I mean, this was almost the vehicle that we used in order to kind of explore a couple of cool stories Mm, that you had to share. So thank you so much for that. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for sharing so much wisdom with the rest of the the listeners here. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This was fun. Wonderful. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.